Lord Jesus, we come before you in adoration, in worship, in gratitude, in joy. We just say, Lord, that what we're looking at here are profound truths that are beyond our full comprehension, certainly beyond my ability to explain things fully. But Lord Jesus, I do pray by your Holy Spirit, you would make these passages a reality to us. They would inspire us, stir us, help us persevere, help us worship you and help us give our lives for your glory. Amen. So this is, I think, number four in our series of The Journey Home. And this is uh, entitled The Return of the King. So obviously we're talking about Jesus' return. And you might be interested to know that 300 times in the New Testament, Jesus' return is referred to. So it's a subject matter that is regularly drip-fed throughout Scripture. So far up to this point, we've looked at what happens when the Christian dies. Our body and spirit are separated. Our spirit goes to be with Jesus in paradise. Indeed, that's where Queen Elizabeth rests right now, although she won't be known as Queen. She'll just be known as Elizabeth. Uh, She's with her saviour. And indeed, the non-Christian, we saw how their spirit and body separate at death and their spirit goes to be in a place we call Hades, which isn't a good place. So it's a place where they're awaiting the final judgment when Jesus returns. Humanity, meanwhile, whilst we die, continues its path on earth until there is a moment when there's a loud trumpet. We'll get to that in a minute, so I won't get too carried away yet. Until there is a moment when God the Father says, enough. And Jesus returns. If you recall, after Jesus' resurrection, he gathers with his disciples and then he physically returns to heaven. And the angels with him say that this same Jesus will come back in the same way. So we as Christians expect a bodily, physical return of Jesus. And this is our certain hope. Guys, this is what it boils down to. If he's not going to come back, what's the point? We're wasting our time. But the reality is, and what scripture teaches us, that in a flash, in an instant, all time will stop as the king of all glory appears. And I hope that as we look at this in a little more detail, this reality will encourage you, strengthen you, motivate you, and help us all to live as though his return could be today, even tomorrow. So let's ask the question, are there any signs of his return before he actually comes? Well, I was going to read you from Matthew 24, but I won't. It's 44 verses, and it's quite long. Uh, So if you've got a minute, enjoy Matthew 24. There's lots of passages in there. But just to overview it, there will be signs. There'll be wars and earthquakes, although Jesus says actually these are not a sign of his imminent return, because they're going on all the time anyway. There'll be false religions, there'll be persecution. People will be led astray from their faith, and many will be martyred. 
Several significant events are listed in Scripture. You can see that in Mark 13 or Romans 11 or 2 Thessalonians 2. There will be a great tribulation or a time of persecution when you'll be doing the world a favour to kill a Christian. There'll be many false prophets around claiming to have done signs and wonders. The gospel will be preached to all nations, people groups, tribes and languages. There'll be the coming of what's called the man of sin, the Antichrist. There'll be the beast, and I'd love to get into that now, but we really can't. There'll be a salvation of Israel, a revival amongst the Jews. There'll be signs in heaven. Now, depending where you live and when you lived, you could probably say that you have seen some of these already. So, for example, the early Christians thought the Great Tribulation was the time of Nero, when he persecuted the Christians, put them on show in the games to be torn apart by wild beasts. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, they, they would think that is their tribulation. False prophets have been around all the time, making all kinds of claims. In the Second World War, many believed that Hitler, Adolf Hitler, was the Antichrist. I think the only undisputed sign is one that hasn't happened. The darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of stars to earth. But you know, if you talk to a Christian today in Afghanistan or in Syria or in Laos, they would say, guys, this has been happening for years amongst us. We've always been under persecution and tribulation. The point is, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And Jesus actually continually warns us to live as though it's tomorrow. Matthew 24, he says about that day, speaking of his return or hour, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the truth is, if Jesus is saying he does not know the specific day he returns, guys, I'm pretty sure you and I can't work it out. And I'm pretty sure anyone who claims to know doesn't. So we're not to live trying to calculate the time, but rather live as though it could be tomorrow. So we're to be ready we're to be watchful, we're to be prepared, we're to be continually going out and preaching the gospel to the nations or where we can't do that personally, we're going to go to support others who can. That's why it's a privilege to be involved with what Andrew does in Laos. You and I can't preach to the people in Laos, persecuted people, a nation with many different languages, tribes and people groups, yet through Andrew and his work we can reach out and support them. But when Jesus does return, it will be sudden. So let's turn to Matthew 24. Or I'll perhaps read it to you because I've got a few scriptures. We'll be jumping around a bit. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, 
and giving him marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Two men in a field, suddenly one of them disappears. Two women working, it's interesting, isn't it? The men are just lounging around in a field, the women are busy working. Two women working, suddenly one of them will disappear, just like that. Obviously my prayer is that you'll be the one who disappears and your unbelieving friend will be the one who's left. The point is we cannot read the signs. But it gives us no excuse not to live ready for his return. So let's ask ourselves, what will the return of Jesus looks like? Now it begins to get a bit more exciting. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. This is Paul writing to the church. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You understand sleep in death, he's talking about the Christians who have passed away, but are actually with Jesus. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the noisiest passage in scripture. There will be a loud command. At some moment, there will suddenly be a loud command from heaven. The same voice that commanded the world to begin will be the same voice that will command it to end in one sense. I wish we knew what it was he was going to say, what this command was. But we'll find out. There will be a voice... That, no, that's not quite it. Be, I was just going to say, a voice of an archangel. That could be it. <laughs> we don't know. And there will be a mighty trumpet sounding. I mean, we can't comprehend it, can we? But there will be a moment, a moment, whether we're here or we're with him, when all of that will happen and all humanity left on earth will just be open-mouthed. We've seen the reaction to the loss of Queen Elizabeth II and how one life can affect so many across the nations. Dear friends, there's going to be something far more dramatic 
when God issues that command. And the dead in Christ, who are with him in paradise, will come with him and there will be a multitude. And, the de- and those who are still alive on earth will see him and we will be reunited in the air. You will either see it from below or you'll see it from above. But if you know Jesus Christ as your saviour, that day you will be a part of it. Wow. And at that moment, at that moment, we will receive our new bodies. It's what we call the rapture, where we will be clothed in the imperishable, in the perfect in the beautiful. Let me read a few scriptures from 1 Corinthians to you, beginning at verse 35. When someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? He's talking about the new imperishable bodies. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. i just jump on to verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. What's that saying? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory Where, O death, is your sting? There'll be a moment and we will be clothed in our new imperishable bodies. And this moment is what we call our glorification. So in Romans, if you recall, Romans 8, Paul writes this in in verse uh, 22. He says... He says, no, that's not right. Oh, sorry, verse 28, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called, Those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. So we've been saved, 
We've been called, predestined, we've been justified, we've been sanctified in the sense of being set in apart for God's purpose, but also on the journey of being changed to the likeness of Christ. But there's one thing missing at the moment. We have not yet been glorified. But now at this moment when Jesus returns, our salvation is complete. We will be glorified. We will have that new imperishable perfect body. Wayne Grudem says glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ return and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunite them with their spirits and change the bodies of all believers who remain alive thereby giving believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. We will be glorified when Jesus returns. And as I said, we will see him and be part of it, either from above or below. Remember, we read read in Acts that we're told that Jesus will return the same way as he ascended. At that time, there were two angels who saw him go and accompanied him. This time there will be millions upon millions who will accompany him. Eleven men stood there and watched him. This time there will be billions upon billions watching him. His first coming to earth was as a helpless babe, concealed in a womb, then a stable, and made known to few. Not this time. Now a king in all his glory comes, not in weakness, but in supreme power, not in humble surroundings, but in all his majestic glory, not in meekness, but as majesty. That's your king, and he's the one who's coming back to call an end to all things and take us to be with him. Now, we're going to look at the passage that I believe gives us the greatest description of Jesus in the Bible. Because what will our descending king look like? What will we see when he comes? And there's a glorious description of this occasion in Revelation 19. I'm going to read that to you. Verses 11. To 16. This is John who's seeing a vision of heaven. He says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. King of kings and Lord 
of Lords. Now John is writing to predominantly Jewish people who have become Christian and he's drawing on his Old Testament knowledge to describe what he sees symbolically and indeed not just his Old Testament knowledge but his cultural knowledge so that the readers can understand what he sees. I, I guess he, it must have been so hard for him to try and describe what he actually saw. So he uses the cultural norms and indeed the Old Testament. What's fascinating is he began the account in chapter 4 of what he saw in heaven by talking about, I saw before me an open door. Now at the end he's saying, all heaven was open before me. So let's look at the symbolic way in which he describes what he's seen when Jesus returns. The first thing we read is that this scene is dominated by a rider on a white horse. This is clearly Jesus himself. Now in John's days, Roman generals, when they went out to war on a, and they were victorious, would return and do a massive parade through Rome with all their armies behind them and they would ride a white horse at the very front as a statement of their triumph and their victory. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what John's communicating to us, that he is victorious. This is a battle that's already won. He's coming riding his white horse. Death is defeated. John tells us that this rider is called faithful and true. The word for faithful is pistos, which means can be absolutely trusted. He's not describing Jesus as someone who answers the phone quickly when you ring them or, you know, if, if you need something and ring them, they'll pop over. Way beyond that. He's describing somebody who is utterly, utterly faithful can be absolutely trusted and true is there's no falsehood in, in him no lie he's made no promise he hasn't kept this is who he is faithful and true he said he would win and he has won he said he would return for you and I and he is doing he said he would judge the unrighteous and the righteous and he will do he said we could trust him and we can Nothing that has come out of his mouth cannot be taken as utter truth, trustworthy. He is faithful. We see also that John says his eyes are like blazing fire. Fire would depict a judgment to the readers. So his eyes are piercing through every soul living or dead, every soul he's piercing through. He's looking for authentic faith. He's looking for those whom he knows. Falsehood disappears. Pretense disappears. Bitter religion won't work. He knows his eyes will pierce. He knows those who are his. We read that he comes with many Crowns. Now, a king in those days, if he ruled two nations, would wear two crowns. I'm not sure if he'd ever wear more because somehow he couldn't handle them. But this king of ours is wearing many crowns. Why? Because he rules all nations. Because his rule is absolute, not limited to any geographical area. 
He has a name that only he knows. Now we know in the Old Testament and New Testament that a name defined a person. Not so much nowadays, although sometimes it does. I think it's something we've missed, to be honest. But in those days, very much the name defined the person. Remember when Moses was going to Pharaoh, talking about the uh, plagues. And he says to Pharaoh, look, give me your name, God. Then at least I can say, Fred has sent me, or whatever. And God basically says, there is no name that can describe me. Just say, I am sent you and then Jesus uses that same name for himself in the New Testament describing himself as I am the I am there is no name to define Jesus or God the Father and as though to emphasize something to us that there will always be something of Christ that is beyond our comprehension as the Bible talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ if you think when you get to heaven you'll know it all I got some bad news for you Jesus will still be grander and greater and mysterious to you you'll never fully comprehend the full beauty and depth and wonder of our Saviour. For he has a name that only he knows. We read that he wears a robe dripped in blood. This isn't his blood. Picks up from a passage in Isaiah 63 about the conqueror who has a robe with blood of his enemies. Jesus has trodden down his enemies. Satan, death, sin, all defeated, all destroyed we're told that his name is also the word of God <coughs> in the Old Testament and indeed the new God's word accomplished whatever it said creation it was God's word that said let there be light and there was light it was God's voice that said let the waters stop here and they stopped here <coughs> in Hebrews we're told that God's word is active and pierces at the end of time we hear that it will stop at God's word his command the earth will stop rotating I think I'm not sure about that there will be a stopping because his word has said so all that God has ever promised is embodied here in the person of Jesus with all authority. His word. Everything he says will happen. But we also read that he's not alone. There are armies behind him. Now, let's be clear. Jesus didn't need you and I. Sometimes I pick that up, not in here, fortunately, but some circles you pick up as though God was somehow short and so he needed to save us because he, you know, he needed something. That's not true. If that was true, God's not God, is he? Because he's short of something. But God isn't short of anything. I'm digressing, aren't I? God saved us for our joy and our pleasure. And also he gets joy out of it in order to demonstrate to us who he is. So this army that accompanies Jesus on his return, this is not an army that he needs us to fight his battles. It's emphasising to us that wherever he is, we're never separated from him. 
He'll never leave us. We're always with him. An army dressed in fine linen, white and clean. His righteousness imputed upon you and I when we become a Christian. That's the righteousness. Never mind what you've done. Never mind what you're going to do. Never mind what you're doing. At that moment, if you know Jesus personally, you'll be dressed in that fine linen. Perfect and clean because it's his righteousness. As indeed we are dressed now. But perhaps don't appreciate it as fully as we will do come this day. And we read again that his weapon is a sharp sword. Now this isn't going to be a, be a battle like you might have seen in Gladiator or Lord of the Rings or Troy or some of those great films. This isn't a battle that you sometimes see depicted and paintings and drawings of the armies of Christ fighting the armies of Satan. No, no. This is just Jesus on a white horse with a sword. And that sword is his word. To emphasise again that his word is all we need. He is king, supreme. He is God. What he says happens. At his word, every knee will bow. That's the kind of battle I'd like to watch. Just to hear the Jesus on his white horse just say, kneel. All humanity, past and present, kneels. <coughs> and to leave us in no doubt, John finishes his description by telling us that on his robe and on his thigh are written the words, This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Dear friends, this is a scene we will experience. A scene that causes us to worship both now in our darkest days and for eternity. A scene that should help us to press through when times are tough and a scene to help us persevere amidst opposition, ridicule and rejection. It will be a day like no other. However, there will be a few things that we may be familiar with. As with all celebrations, we like to finish with a bit of a party, don't we? A bit of a meal, a bit like one of Duncan and Rachel's life groups. They always party, gather round and have a banquet. But this banquet would be a wedding feast like no other that we have ever experienced. In Revelation 19, we read this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, multitude like the rushing of, uh, sorry, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's you and I, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. There's going to be a wedding. And then Revelation 21, from verse 9, 
One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The bride is the church. Beautiful, safe, glorious, free from all evil. This is when Jesus is betrothed. That's you and I are united with him. We, we often underestimate the sheer joy that Jesus will have in seeing his beautiful bride prepared for him. That's you and me and people from every tribe, nation, colour, people group that has ever lived joining together. Now the Western wedding is usually characterised and taken from Genesis. So our procedure would go where the father takes the bride and brings her up the aisle and gives her to the man. That's taken from Genesis when God brought Eve and brought her and gave her to Adam. However, in this culture, and still to this day, it's characterised differently. For now, in, in many nations... A wedding day is the groom will go and collect the bride. So the groom will take a journey and probably have all friends alongside them and go and collect his bride and, I suspect, bridesmaids, etc. You see, she is busy getting herself ready. She's eagerly looking out the window. Is he here yet? She's living with a sense of urgency. I want to be ready for when he turns up. Revelation 22 again says this. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices false falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The Holy Spirit's role until Jesus returns is to prepare the most glorious bride for him. That's you and I. We are to live getting ourselves ready for his return. Making him, making this bride so beautiful. That's not a physical thing. It's making sure there's no bitterness in our church or in our lives. Making sure we have forgiven where we should have. Making sure we're living for his glory. Making sure 
etc. That's how we're getting ourselves ready. It's not about makeup or hairdos. It's about you and me working out to live for the glory of God, which gets the bride ready. Are you looking eagerly? Are you living as though you're looking out the window? It could be coming soon. Am I ready? Am I still bitter? Am I still envious? Am I still saying bad things? Am I still doing bad things? Am I ready? This same eager expectation that the early church had of Christ's return is what we should have today. And if the expectation is no longer present, there's something seriously wrong in us and in the church. Remember, it was the unfaithful servant in Jesus' parable who says in his heart, my master is taking a long time coming as his excuse for faithless service. He's lost sight that the master could come back tomorrow. So he's lazy, he couldn't be bothered. Don't be like this. There may be several reasons for the loss of this sense of expectation and being prepared. It may be that we're so caught up in the material and secular world and interests around us Almost as Jesus' return would be an inconvenience. It would get in the way of our lives. It may be we're so attached to a life on earth that really we don't gaze anywhere else nowadays. Just do our problems and what's going to happen tomorrow and how we'll manage in a week's time or how I'll ever get the things I aspire to. Dear friends, we are citizens of heaven right now we are mere travelers on earth this is not our home nor our resting place but a temporary abode whereby we have the opportunity to demonstrate to our savior our love of him and our faith in him and our eagerness to be ready for that wedding day and that great, great banquet. He's coming back. The challenge is, are you ready? Are you looking for him? Will he find you busy for his kingdom? Will he find you walking in faith? Or will you join me this morning and the Holy Spirit in saying, come? Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We won't bother. Don't, Gareth, don't bother. I'm just going to pray and I'm going to ask you if you feel the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning, that maybe your whole focus, not whole, but just your focus, you can see a pulling that actually we lose sight so often of what we're here for and who we are, and where we're going to, that actually we can get sucked into the worldly priorities. I'm just going to say, as I'm praying, if you want to stand this morning, and just as your expression to God saying, God, look, I may not need to radically transform my life, but I'm going to realign things, because I'm right, I'm not at the window looking for the groom to come, getting myself ready. I'm busy somewhere else maybe this morning is the time to just to realign things 
Actually, let, let's play it, Gareth, in the background. It's four minutes. We've got five. During this song, this song sums up everything I've said. You might feel, actually, we should have just played the song and I didn't need to say anything. But let's respond to God if you feel that today's a day you want to realign things. And then when this fades out, I'll just close in prayer. But this is your moment.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reality of what we've looked at. We thank you that there'll be a day and there'll be a loud command, voice of the archangel and a trumpet sound and our Saviour will return, bringing back those whom have gone ahead of us and gathering those who are on earth who know you personally. And that will be some reunion. We thank you that we'll see our loved ones who knew you. We thank you that we'll see you. We thank you, Lord, that we'll be part of that because of you. So until that day, whether it be that we're here on earth to experience it or with you in the air, until that moment, Lord, I pray, we will live our lives as the bride looking out the window. Is he here yet? Is he coming? With an expectancy of your return that motivates us to live each day for your glory. Amen. Amen. Next time we're going to look at the judgment day. God bless you. Have a great day.